The Incomparable Podcast, number 34, April 2011. We are back on The Incomparable. I am Jason Snell, your host. Our topic today is from page to screen. We're going to talk about books being made into movies or TV shows. The good examples, if there are such things. The terrible examples, there are plenty of those. Um, And joining me today to discuss this, we have Dan Morin. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. Scott McNulty. Hello. Hello. And John Syracuse. Good evening. Good evening. So this was a good idea brought up actually by Scott McNulty. So full credit to him. With Game of Thrones having just premiered on HBO, um, a TV series based on a series of novels by George R. R. Martin. And we're going to talk about that series uh, probably a couple of times in the next couple of months. But that's not really as much the topic of tonight's uh, incomparable as it is uh, a jumping off point. Now, uh, many of us, I think, have read the novel Game of Thrones, and I think it's interesting that even after one episode, if you've seen it, um, it's a very faithful retelling. And actually, I didn't get the heebie-jeebies from it like I I have with some other adaptations. Has anybody else, just really quickly, has anybody else uh, seen the first episode of Game of Thrones? I haven't actually watched it yet. Oh, you guys suck. Okay. John watched watched it. John watched it. I didn't. I haven't read the books though, so I'm coming into it. Clean. Ah, interesting. Uh, I read the books and I watched it. Oh yeah. What did? You, so what did you think? Did it, did it seem faithful? Too faithful? Not faithful enough? I I did not get any heebie-jeebies. Good. Which is good. You and me both. Um, I thought it was pretty faithful. I mean, I, I read the books long long ago, but um, it's it reminded me of what what's happening in the books, so that seems good. I mean, it's an HBO series, so I think they kind of front-loaded some more sex than was perhaps in the first, the beginning of the books to get people interested in the fantasy show. But other than that... Yeah, you know, I think think it was faithful. I I think there's a lot of downloading to be done there about this world. And I can understand that it would be kind of hard to get it all. I mean, John, you... you, um, hadn't read the book but you watched it was it did it seem like you could you could follow it uh, or was it sort of like wow without a map i have no idea what's going on here it was okay for our first episode i, I didn't feel like it was racing away from my understanding i was they, they didn't spend too much time dwelling on things but they spent enough time that you understood who the players were and and you know how the pieces were arranged on the board sort of so uh, i think it struck a good balance in terms of exposition and uh and drama yeah, I would Don't worry, be... by, by season three or four, you'll have lost track. There's just too many characters. <laughs> I, I think that um, I would be worried normally about, about something like that. Having read the book, I'd watch that first episode and say, wow, this is dense. Are people going to get this? But, um, you know, it's no more dense than The Wire, really. Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty oh, of yeah, TV shows that are out there. And HBO is obviously a great example of or, – or something like Mad Men, for example. It's just like where there's – a lot of players, but people are people are pretty good at keeping those things straight, especially if they do, as they appear to have done here, such a good job with casting um, to the point of, you know, really finding people who look like these characters and are different enough so it doesn't look like – and Martin's books have a, a wide enough range of characters that it's not like, oh, it's another guy <laughs> that I can't tell from any of the other guys. So in talking about adaptations, let's let's start with ones we think that are good and to, to – talk about that i'm going to go to john syracuse because <laughs> i think of nobody who is more positive and uh and trying to illuminate what's good in the world than john john do you have some suggestions for good adaptations i do I th- i'll work in some negative stuff too because oh, oh here thank we go goodness. so my, my first one is dune uh and this is a, a movie was it, was it from the 80s yes i don't know it was a long ago 1985 i believe yeah it was David Lynch, who's a very str- very strange director, uh, who has a lot of character. Um, Released within a couple of weeks of one of the ones I'm going to talk about, strangely enough. Anyway, and David and Lynch if, and Sting, yes, yes. So and Kyle yeah, McLaughlin. Patrick Stewart too. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to hold up Dune as like a a, a great movie, uh, but there's one thing you could say about uh, for Dune is that it's interesting. Uh, there's very little in that movie that is expected or boring, even though it is a sci-fi movie. So everything about it is kind of weird, like it should be in a David Lynch movie. 
the characters are weird, the performances are weird, the casting is weird, what the heck is Sting doing there? Uh, the set design, everything about it is weird. Now, if you compare that to the book, I know a lot of people really love the Dune book, but I didn't dis... Well, I, I guess I kind of did dislike the Dune book. It's, I just... I don't like Frank Herbert as a writer. I just think he's boring. Um, and the book, he was so wrapped up. Talk about politically well, that, intriguing and I think Game that's of Thrones. Unfair. I think that's unfair because after the first 250 pages, Dune picks up. <laughs> no, you're right. It's it's really boring. And then there's some action. But but seriously, I, I looked and it was it's about 250 pages of just death before you get there. Yeah, and and the thing about it is he's he's got this very interesting world. Like obviously David Lynch didn't make up the source material, so the the world that that Frank Herbert made up in Dune is very interesting and has lots of cool things in it. None of which he describes because he's more interested in describing the sort of political intrigue right. than he is describing any of the very interesting aspects of the society or technology or anything like that. Which is why when David Lynch made the movie, he could make. The characters, the settings, the vehicles look like whatever the heck he wanted. Other than the fact that sandworms probably had to look like worms, everything else was up for grabs. So he said, fine, you're not going to describe anything in your book. I'm going to make the ships look like gigantic Art Deco, you know, uh, bed headboards or something flying through the air. And I'm going to make the navigators look like giant floaty slug things. And, you know, he did just whatever the heck he wanted. And I think that that freedom of Frank Herbert not describing anything and not really being a writer's writer and David Lynch being absolutely crazy and a director's director produced this wonderful, strange movie that... I think is better than the book in most of the ways that a movie can be better than a book. I mean, obviously it doesn't really hold together as a movie and it's kind of nonsensical and and it deviates from the book in many important ways in terms of, you know, the, the world and, and, and the, the magic powers and the plot. But, but when I'm watching it, I'm like, I don't care. Go ahead, David Lynch, show me what you've got. And I just, just get a good vibe out of it. Um, I thought that's one of the best examples of a book that was like, yeah, okay, it's all right. It's got some cruddy things about it. And Frank Herbert's kind of a boring writer. If you put, that kind of book into the hands of a very, uh, you know, talented, quirky director, you get an interesting movie. Did you see the sci-fi miniseries of Dune? Unfortunately, I guess that would be. I didn't know we were doing to TV. If I had to go to things, so here's Dune goes to a movie, and you get this very interesting movie from David Lynch, and then it goes to a TV miniseries. And if you're a big fan of the book, you're like, oh, finally miniseries. I'll give the room, the books, room to breathe. But you can see again because there's no real descriptions of stuff in the book. You can do anything you want, and the TV series. What they did was made things not very interesting and kind of ugly, and the well, production sort of felt like a, you great. know a, what you'd expect from a Sci-Fi Channel show, right? It was sort of like the Sci-Fi Channel version of Dune, which is exactly what it was, and it looked like that, and it felt like that. I don't think it was and that it bad. In the, it lived in the shadow of the David Lynch one, though, because he has such a defining vision of what all this stuff is like. I think that, it maybe was more entertaining, but I, it certainly didn't attempt to do anything interesting. No. Yeah, I don't. I don't have. Fun. I mean, I don't think it was terrible as far as sci-fi series go, but it really didn't stick with me. And to Scott's point, the sequel was atrocious. So, yeah, but I knew enough. Source to stop. material is atrocious too. I, I knew enough to stop reading the source material after that too. Not that after reading one Frank Herbert book, I was like, okay, that's enough of this guy. He's not <laughs> my guy. So uh, my my second one. Uh, should I do my second one? Or you want to go to somebody else? Oh, go for it. Okay, so my second one, uh, this is an easy one, but one that most people don't think of, but uh, I do, of course, because I'm such a big Stephen King fan, is Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And I think this is a perfect example because so many of Stephen King's uh, things have been made into movies, and so many of the movies have been so, so terrible. And now here's an example that I think pretty much everyone can agree is a fantastic movie. And the reason it's a fantastic movie is uh, two things. One, Stephen King is an amazing storyteller. Not an amazing writer, but an amazing storyteller. And two, it's a short story. It's not a novel. So pretty much everything he put on the page, you have room for in a two, two and a half hour movie. So you get to take this story by a great storyteller and play it out exactly as it is in the book without having to drop anything, without having to do crazy edits. And then the final thing is there's nothing supernatural in this story. Every time there's supernatural stuff in a Stephen King book, it kind of goes off the rails when they try to film it, because either it's hokey and it only works when you write it, but when you try to film it, it looks ridiculous, or they don't know how to film it the right way, or it's supposed to be scary and it just looks dumb. You know, It's very difficult to do you know, supernatural horror very well in film. It's easier to do it in a book where you're writing about it. So this this had no supernatural stuff. So they just go from a straight story about people with no magic in you know a couple hundred pages, and they just put it direct to film and give it a good cast and a good director, and it makes an excellent movie. 
you know, I, I you know, to John's to John's point, I think he he uh, he makes a really good point because I've thought about this in the past that the short stories in movies are actually in some ways a lot. I feel like closer in in art form than novels and movies, yes. and that's because short stories are so economical. There's such a it's a, there's a unity right of of point, like it's very focused. It's it doesn't have a lot of extraneous tangents. You don't usually have like a you know tons of characters. Um, it, there's something very focused about it. Whereas in a novel, you know, I feel like in some ways novels are better adapted to things like TV series as they're doing with games of Thrones, because they give you a little time to delve into these side plots and, you know, characters with their own things going on. There's a little more room to work on something like that than there is to condense into a, not into a movie in which, you know, it's two hours, two and a half hours. You got to take stuff out. You got to throw out entire extraneous things that are that take away from the main plot of the movie and stuff like that. So I, I think there, there is something very interesting about adapting a short story to a movie as opposed to a novel. It really depends on the author, too, because, I mean, even though this is a short story, it's not like a, you know, 20 pager, like some people's short stories. It's a it's a Stephen. I don't know if he calls it a novella or whatever, but in, in Stephen King world, short is, you know, 200 pages, 250 pages. And that's just the right length for a movie. Uh, you probably can't get away with going uh, doing a 10, 15, 30 pager into uh, into a feature length movie. Sure, sure. Most longer short stories from from authors that tend to produce thousand page books uh, fit perfectly in that. And speaking of thousand-page books, uh, that is my my final selection here, which is Lord of the Rings. Uh, you pick me first, so I get to pick it before everybody else. Now, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings books, and for many years, everyone you know held Lord of the Rings up as, as a uh, series of books that were basically unfilmable because they just there was just too much in them, too many settings, too much magic stuff, too expensive. But through the magic of computer technology, suddenly the unfilmable became filmable within our within our lifetime, and they gave it to a director who dedicated his, you know, many years of his life to it, and they got actors who were similarly able to dedicate themselves, and they made a series of movies out of it, and they weren't terrible, which is uh, quite a feat, considering, like, all the Lord of the Rings fans were like, oh, please don't film this, it will just be horrible, you'll just be destroying these books. Uh, to make them not terrible, I think what they had to do was decide, you know, this is a giant 1,500 pages worth of text or whatever, we're going to have to pick some part of it to concentrate on in the movies. And they picked to concentrate on the stuff that works well in the movies. Big epic quest battles, one or two characters that you follow through the whole thing, and then everything else got cut. Tom Bombadil got cut. All the whimsical stuff got cut. All the, you know, Hobbit family stuff got cut. All, you know, just just cut mercilessly. Remove everything that, that is, you know, that people love about the books, but it just does not work in the movie, and dedicate themselves fully to the epic quest and Sam and Frodo and, and doing the whole story. Um... There are lots of problems with those movies and some of the choices they made. I don't really agree with. If we ever do a Lord of the Rings episode, we can talk about them. But to their credit, I think they made uh, probably the best movie you could have made, especially in a first attempt at making movies of these things. Maybe if I live to be a ripe old age of 95, some will try to refilm these movies and have a different take and do it better. So th Those are good movies to the point where my wife said, um, I'm never reading the book. Because I every time you describe it to me, I'm terrified, and I like the movies, so that's good enough. I don't need any more. That's enough. We have the expanded editions, and, and although this goes to the point that there's more story there, it's a long book, too, or a series of books, if you want to view it that way. Um, it, it, so they did three movies, and in fact, there's a t like a 10-hour cut of the three yeah, movies. Yeah, that one, too. And we wa we actually do that every every Christmas. We sort of do a little Lord of the Rings festival. We, I think we didn't do it last year, but but um, we try to do it every holiday for six nights. Basically, it's a disc a night, and and you make your own little mini series, basically, and uh, it's great because those are a really really fun and well well made movies. And I get a very different feeling watching the movies than I do reading the book. So much so that it, they're just I, they're barely related in my mind because when I read the book, it's I'm thinking of like returning to a world and, and getting into all that sort of, you know, uh, folklore and, and whimsical stuff or whatever. And the movies are much more about an adventure. All right. I've, I've got one more thing before we move on. Uh, this is just in general, uh, when I was reading a book, uh, I guess a couple of years ago, I was thinking about uh, things that you can do in books that you can't do in movies. And, and most people don't think about this. Think about it the other way. Things you can do in movies that can't be done in books because you've just got words. And when you've got pictures, you can do so much more. So I was reading uh, A Deepness in the Sky by Werner Vinge. Uh, I hope we do an episode on him eventually. Um, we will. And about half of that book is spent uh, on this uh, this alien world where these spider aliens are. 
and there are characters there that you follow. Uh, they're just as important as the human characters, and these characters have have a work life and jobs and and friends and family and a romance, and there's a government, and they have you know a society and and everything down there. Uh, and then up in space, you've got the humans, and it's kind of a split fifty fifty between these two things, parallel storylines. Uh, and then uh, later in the book, eventually the humans go down onto the planet and they meet these aliens for the first times. And it's the first time that you get narration from the human's point of view of what they see when they see the aliens. And what they see is just like a shiny exoskeleton and like legs everywhere and hissing and clicking and little, you know, emotions from their eyelids and everything going different directions. And at that point in the book, you realize that the point of view from the spider aliens for the whole rest of the book, you were, everything was being translated into human terms for you, you know? They didn't say in, when you when they were describing the spider world that the spider waved its little antennae and made this clicking noise or anything like that. They just, they just, it played out as if they were humans, and it made you relate to them. And only when the two things come together do you realize how incredibly alien these things are and how different they are from humans. Uh, even though from the spider's perspective everything is normal, uh, from the human's perspective they're just horrible hideous creatures you know and this is this moment you can't have a moment like this in a movie because either you show the spiders from the very beginning as being hideous spider aliens who don't speak and and don't have normal language don't have normal gestures and you know whatever they do emit smells or wave their tentacles around or whatever antennas whatever or you show them humans uh, instead of spiders, and then when you reveal that they're spiders, you know, then the, the audience feels like it was a cheat. You know, you could try to use some sort of visual device to to say, oh, you know, you, we were showing them as humans to not put you off of them, but really they're spiders the whole time. And the audience would not like that. Um, so this lack of visuals in the book, was they don't, they don't hide the fact that they're spiders in the book, right? From the beginning, they say, yep, these are spider aliens. And then they just go on and draw you into the lives of these spider aliens. Uh the fact that there's no pictures constantly reminding you that these are spider aliens allows the book to do something that you could never do in a movie because it doesn't have any pictures in it. Um, and that one particular scene, I, it was the first time I ever realized in my life that there was, you know, something that besides uh, length and detail and stuff that you can do just because books are so much longer than uh, than than movies that you can do in books that you absolutely can't do in movies because they lack pictures. Uh, and that was one of my favorite moments of that uh, that book there. Yeah, and I it, I do think it is unfilmable. It's a good story, though. Yeah, I mean that's unfilmable for for other reasons too. But uh, but just for that, uh, the spider alien humanity thing just would not work on screen. Yeah. There's no way to pull it off. You can kind of just stop right with, with that. It's like no, no, it's not going to happen. Um, Dan, do you have a a recommendation or two of uh, good adaptations? I was looking, casting my sort of eyes over my bookshelf as I was sitting here trying to think, which of these books has been made into movies? And and some of them have um, – actually, there are several on my bookshelf that are due to be made into movies, which I'm interested to see. But uh, most of the ones that I'm coming up with um, are not science fiction or fantasy books, but like things like mysteries and, and other other sort of genre books. And, and so I feel, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a cheat, but uh, – um, one of my one of my favorite books uh, by one of my favorite authors is uh, The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler, which is a fantastic mystery book, circa 1940s. Uh, I believe in the 39, maybe it was written. It was made into a movie in 46 with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And it's an absolutely fantastic movie of an absolutely fantastic book. Um, and I think it's it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to do an adaptation maybe that's something there's something about that that's very much related to the time in which it was written or filmed but i feel like you know it would be hard to do a modern adaptation of today or to do it well um but there's there's something that's a big challenge i think in many ways because the plot of a of something like a raymond chandler mystery well you know a mysteries you often often think of them as being related to the plot but i think such a big appeal from chandler is the language um, and, you know, as much as you can translate some of that into dialogue, there's so much stuff that doesn't get made, doesn't make that jump. Like John was saying, like, you know, unless you have a voiceover narration, um, which lends a whole different quality to your movie as, you know, anybody who's watched three different versions of Blade Runner will exactly. attest. It's um, based on a short story. Or yeah, actually, or is that a novel? Novella. That's actually that's a, novel. Yeah, it's a, long, a novel. It's a novel. I read, I've read it. It's, I remember yes, it. Yes, I have as well. It seems like it's shorter um, than Shawshank Redemption, though. But I mean, something like that in terms of, you know, it's hard to film something like that that relies so much on on the prose. Right. 
Um, it's hard to do a great translation of that. And yet the movie ends up being, you know, quite gripping in its, in its own way. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one example of something that I, that I quite enjoyed. Um, I, I'm trying, again, I'm coming up with all this stuff. I feel like that, that I really like that is not, that is sort of out of our hey, normal. I've, I've got a non-genre in my list too, so don't feel um, bad. So, okay. So I'll throw in then a couple of adaptations of works by Nick Hornby. Oh, that's another. the one. You. Oh, oh, which, which uh, we can, t- I can, I, I'm going to take one of I'm going to say High Fidelity. Um, I would say it about a boy then, because which I think that's is a, also also a good movie. Yes, an excellent movie book. and an excellent book. Yeah. Um, and so again, Hornby is someone else whose writing is such a huge, like you know, he's got great prose sense. Absolutely, he, just, he really knows how to craft a sentence. And it's hard to make that transition to film because you know his plot's good and his characters are good too, which is what makes the film, uh, you know, about a boy, uh, so you know enjoyable. Yeah. But at the same time, you you know, there's it's a totally different experience reading the book. Um, and so I think I read the book after I had seen the movie. Um, and you know, there is that as you're talking about with your wife. You know, there's that that disparity of like, well, I like the movie. I mean, maybe I like the book, but you know, am I just gonna be picturing the same characters? And yet, for me, it was totally you know a totally disparate experience. Um, you know, yeah. it was, it was the story, although it's the same story and the same characters, it feels like something, it feels like a different telling of the story somehow. Well, I mean, and, they, and, and there are also some changes in the, in the movie yeah. from, from the book and, and likewise high fidelity. I mean, first off it's mm-hmm. set in Chicago instead of in London. And there are, there are other things about it that are very different, but in the same, in the same way, I think both of those movies, um, have the have the sort of spirit of the book and the heart of the book is is mm-hmm. where it should be and as a result they both work even though I'm a huge fan of his work and of those books and I I didn't feel offended by the changes they made because I felt like they were they were smart changes made for adapting it to a different medium which I and, and saying that they they respect the spirit I think is really important like they do they somehow fit tonally with with what he's the story he's generally trying to tell and I would love to see He's written at least three other books that I think would be just excellent, you know, adaptations, including uh, Long Way Down, um, Slam, which I oh, think we Slam talked about briefly on, yeah. our, on our podcast, and um, his most recent one, Juliet Naked, which is a great, just a great yeah. book. He's an expert at crafting um, stories, um, and like like John was saying about Stephen King, Hornby could tell a great story, um, and I think that that really helps when you're translating something from from page to screen um i'm trying to think if there's one other thing in my so actually i'm gonna let me let me branch off of something you said there which is we're talking about these movies that made changes to the book and i think it's worth at least touching on for a minute um there can be adaptations that fail because they honor the source material too much and i think there are adaptations that are successful because they don't Uh, you know well there's a a slavish adaptation right is yeah uh, is a problem in some ways if you are adhering so closely to the letter of the book that you miss a book is not a movie, right? You know, they're fundamentally right. two different art forms. Like John was saying, there's things you can't do in, in a movie that you can do in a book and vice versa. And so, you know, if you're trying to adhere so closely, then it loses. It's like trying to make a photocopy and, you know, you might get sort of some of the fidelity, but if you make a photocopy of a painting or something, you know, it's not. You're, you're trying to reproduce it so exactly that you you lose something of the original in that, and and I think it's you know best when you put it in the hands of somebody who's really an artist in their own particular you know uh, media. Right. I, I think that's case um, number one. Item number one in the case against Watchmen is that mm. is that um, he tried so hard to be faithful, you know, including shot by shot recreations of panels. And in the end, the most interesting thing in that movie, and I don't think it's as bad as most people think it is, but it's not saying parts of it aren't terrible, but um, but the most interesting thing in the entire movie, the thing that everybody seems to like, is the opening credits, where he does something different that fits the medium that he's in, even though he's telling the same story, and the opening credit montage is fantastic. And then, you know, but the rest of that movie is, with the exception of trying to fix the 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 ending which is kind of broken in the original too um it's it's so um it's honoring the the graphic novel which is great and i love it so much so that i think it stifles the movie i think it actually kills it and another great you know example of that sort of thing although it's going from film to film is uh gus van sant's attempt to do a shot-by-shot remake (laughs) of psycho which 
totally loses the thread. I mean, you know, again, what you're trying to it, there's a question of why, but there's also a well, clearly there's something going out going on in, you know, something un, you know, intangible going on in the original if you can copy it shot by shot and you go from making a one of the like best you know, thriller movies ever to one of the worst thriller movies ever. Clearly, there's something that you're missing there. And I think that's the danger of adapting a visual story to another visual medium, right? Because, you know, graphic novels, you have, you can see it, so you're tempted, I imagine, I've never made a movie, but I would imagine that I would be tempted, I love this graphic novel so much, I want to take, like, the guy has already laid out what it looks like, so I can take that and just make it into my movie and it should be perfect and sadly it is not well it's kind of a circle because like at this point comics especially by the time of watchmen are being influenced by cinema so it's like it's a circle around where people are putting in comic panels cinematic points of view or things that they've seen in movies and then that gets fed back into a movie that gets fed back into the comic book so there are there are certain things that are standard for comic books and things that are standard for movies but at this point they're so mixed up that like for someone who hadn't read the the Watchmen graphic novel, and I saw the movie, sometimes I could pick out. Oh, it's obviously they're doing that thing where they picked a cell from the, you know a frame from the comic book and they're doing it on screen. But at other points, I could totally not tell. And only later when I went through the graphic novel did I see, huh, that's actually something from the novel. I was sure that was just something that was put in the movie because it's so cinematic. Uh, and and what I see in the comic book looks like a freeze frame from a movie instead of vice versa. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Scott, what about you? Do you have um, some uh, Sterling examples of adaptations for us? Well, Sterling, I don't know about, but but fun, yes. So uh, this one, I don't know if anyone's going to agree with me or not, but uh, I did enjoy the most recent uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie, Ooh. which I didn't get very good reviews, and I, I heard someone say "ew." So that was <laughs> I may be guess. I may be alone in this, but I thought I, it was I didn't I didn't I didn't loathe it. I don't think I felt as badly about it as as other people do. But I, you know, it wasn't a perfect movie. But I was disappointed. I think I was a, disappointed by it more than it had else, its because I love the source material so much. It did have its moments, and that's what I, I enjoyed the moments. I any movie that starts with dolphins singing a song is really okay in my book. <laughs> Uh, and so it could only go up from there, or I guess down from there. If you had never read there, the but... book, do you think you would have enjoyed the movie at all? Uh, probably not. I think there... that I, I love the book so much that it gained a halo effect. And uh, oh, Because movie you know was, what they're doing. Like, they did select – it seemed like it was like selected scenes from the Hitchhiker's Guide. And if you had right. read the whole thing, the selected scenes are like, oh, yeah, I remember that part they're doing in the movie now. Oh, look, they're doing a different part. You know, but there was there didn't. You know, I could it, see that another example of a book that it, you know you could argue is unfilmable, and of course, you know, maybe nothing's really unfilmable in this day and age. But again, there's something so innate in in the way that Adams writes that. Well, and yet the BBC ser- miniseries isn't you know is I think better. Um, uh, you know, tied into the, right, well, to the, the novel. The material is too long for a movie. And the other thing is, it's like Dan was saying that the transitions in the book from one ridiculous thing to the next happen because of Douglas Adams writing. So he brings you from, you know, one place to the other, unless you're going to translate right. his writing directly into a voiceover and do it in a long running miniseries. There's, you can't visually transition from one set of events to the other without Douglas Adam writing you through it. You well, know, they, they toss I'm... up the guide in most cases and have the guide, you know, and, and that can work or not. And that happens in the uh, in the TV series, the BBC TV series as well, where all of a sudden you're back in the guide. And I, I think in the movie, they, they, they did a pretty interesting job of trying to weave the, the Hitchhiker's Guide itself into the into the story but i suppose it might make no sense yeah, if you that, hadn't read the book and that takes you out of the movie experience though once you once even like that's the problem with the voiceovers or any sort of thing where you have like a title card right you're taking me out of the cinematic experience and saying now we're going to read you from well, the book but, and now we're going to take uh, you voiceovers back yeah i, I mean the, the uh, shawshank redemption has a voiceover i mean like you know there is there, yeah, there but is it's not, a time and place for them but the voiceover is not from the book the voiceover is a device to make the movie work it's not like show a crazy scene, then grab three paragraphs out of the book and put them up on the screen as a voiceover, and then show another crazy scene, you know? No, no. But I think I think what they were trying to do in the Hitchhiker's movie is something, as I recall, having only seen it once, something almost more like uh, like what they did in Scott Pilgrim, where it's it's like a 
trying to be kind of this overlay multiple, you know, we're modern people and we multitask and here's this crazy Hitchhiker's Guide. Because in some ways the Hitchhiker's Guide as a concept makes more sense now than it did then in a way. It's more real because we have like Wikipedia and iPads and things like that. It's true. And and so I kind of think of it as like, uh, at least in the movie, they kind of did it like a pop-up video kind of thing, right? right. So it would be... The, the entry in the Hitchhiker's Guide that Stephen Fry would read, because he was the voice of the Hitchhiker's Guide in the movie, was related to whatever action, maybe not directly, but in some way that was happening in the movie. So it kind of gave – and, not, you know, I know this movie is not great, but I enjoyed it. Uh, so it kind of gave people who hadn't read the book an idea of what's going on. All right. At least that's what they were trying, I think. Any other uh, suggestions, Scott? Well, I will suggest uh, I only liked this movie because I hated the book so much. Huh. Uh, so I, I will say Harry Potter. I enjoyed the movie much more uh-huh. than I enjoyed the book. Did you watch uh, other Harry Potter movies? I have watched all the Harry Potter movies, huh. as a matter of fact. And, I refuse to read any of the books after the first one. Very interesting. Scott and I, the two Harry Potter haters who have both seen all the movies. It's true. I, I like Harry Potter, even though I have to admit, as, as I'm reading them out loud to my kids, that she's really not a very good writer. She's a good world builder. And you can, you know, she's a good world builder. And that comes across in the movies. And she, I think she gets better as a writer as she goes along. Well, she clearly learns. I mean, we had a whole podcast talking, talking no, about this. I think Ooh. she does. I think no, she actually I needs agree. an edit, editor gets... more later, but she's a better writer. I think, I think it's this weird thing where she got less editing because she was famous, but she was also actually working hard at writing these huge books and was just, was getting better at her craft as she went, uh, which is weird. So she ended up being kind of like need, still needing an editor, but clearly being better at what she's doing than she was at the beginning. But the world building is great, and that leads to these great movies that are a lot of fun because there is so, so much um, interesting stuff to base the movie on because it's, she's got a plot and she's got uh, an interesting world, which is good source material for a movie. I, I was going to hold these movies up as an example of, uh, even though I haven't read the books, as an example of movies that suffered from being... Uh, too faithful for the book. Not that they took everything that was in the books and put it in there, but that they felt the need to oh, say, oh, we got to have element X. Oh, we got to have character Y. Oh, we got to have element Z. And they, they did that too much. They didn't cut enough. So what you end up with, especially for someone who hasn't read the book, and especially in the later movies, are these movies where it's like, Andrew, this this character in this plot point, And don't forget about this character in this plot point. And by the way, there's this character in this plot point, And we'll hint about this backstory. But now it was too many little things that were too disjointed because they could not bear to not have this thing in the movie when really to make a better movie you should have cut those characters combined these two <laughs> characters into one you know what i mean see i i can see why you're saying that but having read the books um they actually do a lot of that they, they, I, they didn't is, do enough it, they they threw i think they threw as much out as they thought that they could get away with they couldn't like combine characters for example but i i do having just seen one of these uh the other day we, we my kids saw the fourth one for the first time because we're watching them after we read the books and um, boy, they they did a lot of compression, compression, which was good because it's a really long book, and a lot of the stuff could just get tossed out. So whole subplots get tossed out, and things get shortened down and simplified. And um, you know what they couldn't actually, they did a pretty good job of of um, the plot resolution at the end because the book has got two chapters of just painful plot exposition at the end, where it's like, let me explain everything that's been happening behind the scenes while this entire book went on. It's so awful. Um, and in the movie, it's handled much more straightforwardly. My wife was telling me that the big problem from her perspective, because she's a, basically a Harry Potter scholar at this point in the books, <laughs> the, the big problem was that they started filming the movies before the books were done. So because yes. they didn't know where the series were going, they didn't know what was important. And by the time you get three or four movies in, you're like, oh, we didn't even show this in movies one and two because we didn't think it was going to be important. But now in book five and six, it becomes super important. And now we have to fill, you know, backfill. I read an article in Entertainment Weekly a few years back that said that they actually had a few questions like that. And and J.K. Rowling uh, approves all the screenplays. And she actually gave them notes saying, no, you can't get rid of this character here because they are important later. Even though she hadn't written and published all the books yet, she knew where the plot was going. Um, so they did some of that at least where she was like, no, 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 <laughs> you can't take that out. That's so I suppose it could have been later. worse, but from, it, from my wife's perspective, I think that's they... what I'm saying. It could have been worse. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that should be the, there's the title of this week's podcast. It could have been worse. <laughs> on, along along those lines, or at least in a similar genre, um, any any C.S. Lewis fans? Yeah, when I was a kid, I read all those books. I, I mean, I I really have a fond spot for some of the books, though. Going back and rereading them, uh, you know, when slightly older, you know, there's a lot. There's a different reading you get when you're, yeah. you're an adult reading. Those I totally books. missed the whole thing about Aslan being Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think that that probably that, as that as the important. you know the child of a, a family that didn't really you know go to church or have much in the way of of religious upbringing that totally flew over my yeah. head as well. That said, I still think Lewis is a is a great storyteller, and several of the books on their own um, are excellent excellent stories. I mean, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I have not seen the movie, which just came out, um, but or like last year, I guess. Um, but that book remains, you know, a very it, 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 it has a very fond memory for me because it's very. And then later, you know, comparing with other things, it reminds me very much of something like the Odyssey. I mean, it's got this sort of, sort of uh, whole plot about uh, you know going on this this lengthy boat ride with all these adventures and stuff like that. Um, and I thought I only saw the first of the movies, which was okay. I think to a certain extent they do fall into that trap of trying to remain a little bit too faithful. And and it comes across as somewhat bloodless. Um, yeah, it didn't work for me. There, there are some good points in it, um, and there are some nice um, performances and some you know a couple of things elements that I really uh, did like. But on the whole, yeah, it does come across as a little bit too. I don't know, just a, maybe just a little bit too bloodless. Um, and I did not see. I heard the second one was better. I didn't see it. You heard um, the second one was better. Not my. I was going to say I was going to say you hit it right in the nose with, with Bloodless and that the first movie was the best of them uh in terms of making really? the world feel alive and making it feel like there's something at stake and making you care about the characters and the the second was there a third movie? I don't know if I've seen all of them but they just yeah, it was a third. They get progressively more generic and just nothing is at stake and you're not really excited about any of them that is going through the motions, you know. That I'd argue that the best of the books may be the ones that are tangential um, to that whole series, which are the horse and his boy and the magician's nephew in that they sort of, they aren't about the characters that we follow through the first three or four books. Um, and they kind of stand on their own a little better. So I don't know if they'll get around, you know, if I suppose as long as those movies keep making money, then they'll keep making them. Um, but I don't know if they'll get around to those because they don't follow the sort of main plot. Right. So I've got um I've got some things to speak of positively. I I've actually I'm slightly cheating. I have a children's book, a a non uh genre novel and a graphic novel that I'll mention in turn. Um the children's book is The Iron Giant based oh. on the Iron Man. Um I love this movie and you know at some point movie. at some point we could even when we talk about children's movies which I think we're going to do I can I can rhapsodize about it more but I, I love the movie I think it's a great movie uh, it's Brad Bird before he went to Pixar and made The Incredibles and Ratatouille um, he made The Iron Giant and it sort of stiffed at the box office but gosh it's a great movie and um, and based on a you know some source material that's a little bit different but a beloved uh, children's book. Uh, called the Iron Man, and uh, so so Iron Giant, I think, is a great example of. Uh, again, you've got a you've got a book with illustrations and a story, but it's not a particular you know it's not a children's novel, um, and then it's expanded on and and made into this great movie. I got. I'm actually just getting goosebumps when you're talking about it just because <laughs> I'm remembering the movie. It's such a great movie, and they and especially. The you know the the climax the room, and end of that room movie gets a little is, dusty at the end of that movie. Do you, it is it is a little eyes get a little, a little watery. Sad. Yeah, it's, oh yeah, it's it's well done though. It's a very good movie. I only saw it. I I first saw the movie just a few years ago. I mean, it came out what in the nineties. Uh, it's yeah. fairly old. I think I was a teenager or something when it came out. But um, I saw it just a few years ago, and and really, I just really adored it. It's a great movie. And it no. features the uh, the vocal stylings of Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, Jen- Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer. Harry and Connick Vin Diesel Jr. as the Iron Giant, and Vin Diesel as the Iron Giant. That's right. A role oh, he was Garth. born to play. Uh, Nineteen ninety nine. That that film came out. Um, another one that I love, and we talked about this earlier when I growled at Dan. High Fidelity. Uh, Nick Hornby, one of my favorite writers. Um, I love this movie too. This is actually, and and, and I love the book, and they are different, but. 
you know, it, it's hearts in the right place. The the characters are strong. John Cusack is exactly as much of a an idiot who has got a lot to learn about life and about his relationship with other people, especially women. Um, and, uh, just does a great job. You know, I think it's, it's a great performance by him. Great direction by Stephen Frears of interesting. So English director <laughs> reset the movie into America and then have an English director. Um, love that movie. I, that's one of those movies that I can watch again and again. And, uh, and, and I just really like it, even though they made a bunch of changes to it, 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 it still really is holds up. Yeah. And, 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 and it hasn't changed my feelings about the book. The book is great. The movie is great. They're a little different. They're both great. Um, and for the, in the graphic novel category, um, I mentioned Watchmen being, uh, uh, a bit of a failure. Um, I'm going to turn it around with another Alan Moore selection, which is V for Vendetta, which mm. I really love, um, uh, it hits hits me just right. I, I really like that movie. Um, uh, interesting, affecting, um, has some interesting things to say, I think, about uh, politics without being too preachy. I actually think that you could view it in a, a bunch of different ways, and I think it makes some interesting statements about totalitarianism. And it, yeah, it's got a 1984 kind of vibe and a lot of uh, uh, nods to 1984, right down to the fact that John Hurt is in it, who was in the movie 1984. Um, and I've got the graphic novel and the graphic novel is good. Um, but I think they did a good job in, in, in translating it. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it it's easy to mess something like this up as Watchmen, I think showed and i don't think they did with v for vendetta in fact if you view this it was directed by james mcteague but it was produced by the wachowskis and if you view this through the lens of how how bad the matrix sequels were what 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 matrix sequels if you view anything through that lens it looks better uh that's that's true (laughs) i think we should talk about bad movies now let's get negative that's all i can think about Uh, all right, I'll, I'll um, I'm going to start and say that one of the mo- one of the books that I actually have always enjoyed and was one of my favorite books when I was a teenager is Arthur C. Clarke's sequel to his novel 2001 uh, oh. called 2010. <laughs> um, I really like that book. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. Some interesting characters. Some interesting stuff happens. And then they made the movie, and it's not just that Peter Hyams is no Stanley Kubrick, but um. That movie is is bad. It's bad in lots of ways. It takes some liberties when it shouldn't and then is devoted to the story in ways that it shouldn't be and omits the best scene, which kills me. Uh, probably for budgetary reasons, the best scene, the scene that sticks with me more than any other, the scene that gave me chills when I, re- when I reread it um, on New Year's Eve 2010. Um <laughs> I, I spent a couple hours and I, I reread some of that novel um, and they didn't, they just didn't, they took it all out. They didn't even try to film it or even mention it. They just took it all out. Butchered, bad movie, um, enjoyable book. think it gets a bad reputation. Um, the sequels, the other sequels aren't as good, but I, I really enjoyed that book. And I think it was interesting to have Arthur C. Clarke kind of reclaim his part of the story um, separate from the movie. Uh, but then they made a movie and uh big mistake and bad movie. And it came out within a couple weeks of Dune, by the way. At one point, they were both playing side by side in my local uh, local uh, duplex movie house in the small town that I grew up in. I, uh, I, you, you, you reminded me of this by mentioning Alan Moore uh, and Alan Moore, of course, who famously um, does not want his name on any movie that is right. made out of his his comic books. But I will say, um, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen oh. is a pretty good comic book. Not a bad a comic terrible book. movie. <laughs> that is one of the uh, one of the worst movies I may have ever seen in a movie theater. Um, and again, not for lack. I mean, not for lack of trying. In some ways, I mean, I do love. I have a special place in my heart for Sean Connery, and yet he does not. That is not a good movie in any way, shape, or form. And Alan Moore is, is right to have taken his name off of that one. <laughs> Scott, can you be negative now? I, I can be negative. So I, I have to preface this by saying that uh, when I was younger, I would fall, well, I still do this. I fall into uh, certain moods and I obsessively read certain authors or genres. 
And so at some point, I came across one of L. Ron Hubbard's uh, – he was oh. a science fiction writer before he was uh, a founder of a religion. And I, you're, I you're, you're not going to believe this, judgments. Scott, but before, I was deciding whether I wanted to mention Battlefield Earth or let you go. Ah, Seriously. Is, Seriously. This, I wrote it down. Battlefield this Earth. This is Battlefield Earth. That is exactly ah, – ah. the book, It's I read the book and I mean it's not a great piece of literature but – L. Ron Hubbard is not a great writer, but he's a pulp, you know, a pulp sci-fi writer. So his books are fun. Um, uh, uh, Dianetics and those books are a different kind of uh, literature. Uh, so Battlefield Earth as a book is a fun book. It's really long. Um, and then you get John Travolta, who is a devout Scientologist, who wants to bring, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's a masterpiece to the to the screen, right? And and speaking of slavish devotion to the book, right? He just films this. I think it was sixteen hours long uh, movie that is just awful. Only seemed like it was that long. That that I tried to watch that movie um, in and just to make fun of it with friends of ours. <laughs> we and usually that goes pretty well. We couldn't get through like half no. an hour of it. It was so terrible. That movie is so bad you can't even make fun of it. I watched the whole thing. And no, was... you know, so bad is funny. This is so bad. It's funny that you haven't murdered yourself. <laughs> exactly. That's I would pretty bad. I would not recommend anyone watch Battlefield. <laughs> no, no, don't. <laughs> don't. Don't do it. You, you might say to yourself, "Well, I'll get the riff tracks." And I'm like, no, no, don't. don't. It's not worth it. Read the book. The book isn't all that great, but it's much better than the movie. <laughs> well, he was a you know he was a pulp sci-fi writer before he was a uh, a founder of a religion, and and you it's know, true. There, he can he could do fun stuff. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of his books. He he wrote uh, a, a ten part series, uh, Mission Earth, which I read, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I hope John Travolta does not make any Mission Earth no. movies. I would I would I would like to see somebody go in the in the other direction, um, start a religion, and then become a pulp science fiction author. You oh. know, if Jesus had written pulp science fiction, for example, might have been very different. Uh, he it, went under the under the pen name Aslan. Oh, <laughs> wait a second. I, I see what you did there. Call back. <laughs> wow. That may be the worst movie ever made by anyone <laughs> in the universe. I'm not sure. I don't know if it made it all the way down the bottom of the uh, the IMD bottom 100, but I, I'm well, pretty sure it's in there. I'm just trying to think of other terrible movies made throughout history and, and imagining if they were novels, right? It's like the guy <laughs> the guy who wrote Geely, the novel. He's like, oh, they messed up my book. And Ben Affleck <laughs> ruined my Book for the guy who wrote the novel from Justin to Kelly. He must have been furious <laughs> when they made that movie. Well, that's why Alan Moore didn't want his name on that movie because that's, <laughs> that's anyway. a great comic book, though. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, but they took out the swamp thing entirely when they remade it as from Justin to Kelly. It's a shame. It did. It did. Yeah, I, I believe Justin. Uh, he was the Floronic Man in the original <laughs> comic think, by Alan that, Moore. I think that's right. Yes, Starship Troopers is also another movie that I think. Not uh, clearly not as bad I, as Battlefield Earth. But, I, no, uh, I, I like that movie. I, uh, I don't it know. Has, yeah, I like Starship Troopers. It's it's interesting though because in some ways it has a very antithetical, I think, point yes. compared to the book. <laughs> like, there's a movie that was made that has a you know kind of the almost the opposite yes. message. I don't think from it does. Book, I think, I think is, it's I think it's just more really. A, I think it's more of a satire, and they it, it, it is it, it goes, is but it goes so far in the direction like. It, it takes an earnest message and does it even more earnestly to the point you're like, okay, no one can be this earnest. This must be a satire. Right. So, right. But I, I think Heinlein well, yeah, is earnest. I think that's, Heinlein, a, yeah, Heinlein that, that's the point, right? Exactly. I mean, like Heinlein was very serious about what he was, what he was talking about in terms of, you know, the military, whereas the, you know, clearly the movie, I mean, get no farther than dressing up Neil Patrick Harris and, and basically a, a Nazi. <laughs> and, like, Nazi. All right. You're making a point here. They sucked out his brains. It's not a terrible movie. Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's good not movie. A great movie. I like it because I like it because jugheads who watch that movie think it's about how awesome the army is. That's the favorite thing for me about that movie. It's <laughs> it's a satire that most people don't view as a satire, and that's the most successful kind because you'll see tons of people like Starship Troopers is awesome, man, with those bugs and they shoot them. That's what the majority of the public oh. I feel thinks about when they see Starship Troopers, and they just miss the entire the rest of it. One that I wanted to mention uh, was the Golden Compass. Does anyone? Read that. Not, not a good so, movie. So, so unsuccessful that. a movie that they, they didn't go on and make the others. No, that movie was right. awful, and the book is delightful. 
I've heard I've heard that those those books are actually very good, and I've been meaning to read those them. books. I I think they're they're deeply deeply flawed, um, and and I think that the the first book there there is some great stuff in there, but I, I that first book is really problematic, um, and I think they. I'm not the movie wasn't any good either. Um, although it did have giant armored polar bears fighting at one point, which if there was anything redeeming in that in that movie, it was that. It's true. Aren't the books like super duper anti religion? That's why the movies were no good. Yes. If that's the case, because you can't make a movie that's anti religion because no one will go see it. But apparently, you can make a series of fantasy books that wow. are anti organized religion and people buy them. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in that in those books that is this kind of. I mean, I you know, I, w- I won't say that that it wasn't successful because it didn't sell, but because there's a there's a problem with the plot and the characters. Is the in my issue opinion, okay? So it's not it's not necessarily that it's preachy about what it's preaching. No, about. I think it's poor. I think it's poorly written right. in some ways. There's there's some stuff that's not you know, it's a there is some stuff in there in those books that is that is quite sloppy from a writing perspective, in my opinion. But. Scott, did you like the books? I did like the books. I, I, I don't recall anything that happened in them. But when I was reading them, I did enjoy them. It's actually just a, a hypnotic suggestion that you will feel refreshed and enjoy the, enjoyed the books. Exactly. But no actual plot. No no plot. And I, I – I, the movie was awful. <laughs> the book was not awful. All right. There's a lot of that. There, there's, there, there are more bad adaptations than good adaptations, I think. Screamers. They're more, but they're more bad movies than there are good movies. I think too. Has anyone seen Screamers? It's yeah. a bad no. movie based on a uh, Philip K. Dick short story. Philip K. Dick has really. Uh, have they rifled through every single thing he's written now and turned it into a movie? I think with with wow. varying degrees of success. Yes. Right. Blade Runner. Total uh, Recall. Total Recall. Yeah. Well, Blade Runner is a good example of uh, of taking. Taking a book or a novel and then making a movie that has the same title, uh, but, but has it doesn't very, have the same title. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Uh, it has a it totally doesn't, doesn't, Android totally Dream Electric Sheep title. didn't work for the title, but you know what I mean. It's it's based on a, a novel, but has so little to do with it. That that so novel and that book are so far apart in tone, in message, in plot, in characters. Everything is just. It's like I guess you were inspired by the yeah, story by actually, Philip K. Dick. The total um, total recall is interesting because there was the there was the novella that turned into the movie, and then the movie had a tie-in novel novelization. Well, of course, they all they all have to have by that. Piers Anthony. Oh, so so from Philip K. Dick, you go all the way back That's around to insulting. Piers Anthony. Yeah, that is that is not good. Peculiar. The you know, end so is nigh. before we go, I wanted to mention. Um, a novelization speaking of novelizations that that i loved when i was a teenager uh that was just a movie novelization so going back the other direction which is um one of my favorite movies is star trek 2 and i bought the novelization of that which was by vonda mcintyre who's won hugo awards and is a very good writer and um i i probably if i went back and read it now i'd be deeply disappointed but i read that thing like two or three times and I, it was a really good book largely because she um expanded the screenplay into a novel's worth of of stuff it's sort of the reverse of what we were saying about harry potter where you have to throw a bunch of stuff out she's sort of you know in star trek 2 when they go down to the 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 space station that's orbiting around the asteroid they find all the dead bodies hanging there and it's sort of like oh those guys who were in that one scene earlier in the background now they're dead Oh, well, whatever. And in the novel, they're like all of these scenes with these characters and they're these scientists. They're trying to figure out this problem and then they're running and they're trying to escape from Khan before he kills them all. And they get and they die and they're hung up and it's very sad. And um, so so every now and then, I, I, you know, at least when I was uh, when I was younger, I would read these movie novelizations and most of them were very bad. But that one was pretty good. And I've got on my bookshelf here, but still haven't read it. um, The out of print abyss novelization which is by orson scott card which is actually supposed to be not actually supposed to be not bad but um strange and and i and i believe long out of print which i i may be the only person in the world to own a copy of the novelization of hudson hawk (laughs) 
which was given to me by an ex-girlfriend who worked in a bookstore because she found it one day. Hang on uh, to in that one. Used book section. I thought I, thought I have not. Awkward. I have not cracked it open, but it, the idea that they novelized that amuses me. Like, who is the audience for this? <laughs> when Nobody liked. Sang. You know, I'm one of the few people who liked the movie, but most people didn't like the movie, and it seems unlikely. Novelizations fascinate well, they thought, me because they thought people because, would like it, right? You've got to. You've got to say this is going to be a hit. We're going to have a novelization out there. You take right, the but, chance. But noveliza- novelizations fascinate me because they say. Look, we think you're unlikely to watch the movie or something or you either you enjoyed the movie or we think you're unlikely to watch it. But like what person says, "Yeah, you know what? I don't really like that movie. I'll wait for the book." Right. I don't think that's a big slice no, of people. No, I think it's your very excited. And if the excited, people are waiting for the you're book, you're excited by the movie and you want to I, read the book because the movie was so great, you want to read the book. Yeah, it's people like me who, who want to know especially more. When they, more about the Wrath especially of Khan. when they adapt yes. books and then yes. novelize them again, because clearly the people who are considered themselves too snooty to, to oh yeah, that was a much better book, aren't going to read a novelization. Yeah, I, was, you, I think you're the first people I've ever met who bought novelizations and read them. I always wondered who buys these things, novelizations, of movies. Is there anybody out there who's looking for these? But here we have two people who willingly, willingly got novelizations of movies. I didn't buy one. It was given. Mine was given to me. I can't All remember right. the last time I did it. But when I was when I was a a, a kid and a, a huge Star Trek fan and i i would buy any star trek book that i could get my hands on and then you know they came out with the novelizations of these books and that that one i in particular i remember because it was by an actually you know a, a good novelist and and she did a i think a pretty good job and and there, there are some there are some other really good writers who have who've done novelizations of didn't greg bear yeah, Greg Bear does a is a Halo. I think he did a Halo novel. Yeah, there's some strange. Some yeah, well, strange video stuff. game novelizations is also a really big, a really big thing now too. But I was gonna say I have all the I do actually have all the novelizations of the Star Wars trilogy, right? Which are odd. <laughs> and then there's Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which is like in the Nether region. Well, of, uh, which was written by the same guy who ghost wrote the Star Wars. Yeah. The Star Wars novelization. The Star Wars novelization is notable for me in that it actually contains a reference like Obi-Wan Kenobi talks about ducks, <laughs> which may or may not exist in the Star Wars universe. It's unclear. They got to fill those pages strange. somehow, you know. Exchange. And that was yeah. by George Lucas, right? Allegedly. No, no, no. By the first George Lucas. It was by Alan Dean Foster. He yeah. ghost wrote it. Right, but the first one is actually credited to George Lucas, which it is later it like does James have his name on it. The Return of the Jedi and... Yeah, I think they later um James I think in Kahn? later reprints of it they took off they took off Lucas's name. James Kahn, yes. Not Jim, not Jimmy Kahn, the actor. <laughs> I was thinking the, the actor. Kahn like misspelling <laughs> the wrath of Kahn. K A H N. So is this Darth Vader guy? <laughs> the wrath of James Kahn. I've got a book about a movie. <laughs> I would watch The Wrath of James Caan, by the way. I, I would read the novelization of The Wrath of James Caan. M- Misery, also another, I think, movie that did a good job of translating from a book to a movie. Speaking of James Caan. And, and Stephen King. Another one of Stephen King's shorter books. Only about an inch thick, maybe less. Are there Are there books that you feel should or need to be made into movies? Or that you would like to see oh. as a movie? I'd like to see the Dark Tower as a miniseries, and luckily I'm probably well, going to get that chance. It's coming. You're going to get a movie, right. and then a TV series, and then another movie, yeah, I, and then another I, TV I would, series. I would like the Dark Tower to get a Lord of the Rings type treatment, and it won't fit in a series of movies. So I guess they have to do some other form. So if they're going to do it as a miniseries and 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 a bunch of movies, then give it a try. I hope it doesn't come out like the stand miniseries, which was a total disaster. Uh, so I've got my fingers crossed for Dark Tower. Well, they're making two other good Neil Gaiman works into into adaptations. The Good Omens and American Gods are both being turned into, I think, miniseries. Oh. Um, both of which are excellent books. American um, Gods, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I would have to say, I, I, this actually came up recently. A cousin, one of my cousins, emailed me to say her uh, her husband, who's a huge film buff, was talking to this guy who was who had made a fairly well known movie and said this guy is looking for you know his next sort of project um and looking something to adapt into a movie and so she was asking us for suggestions and one of the ones i came up with which is uh, a series of books that i've been reading for a while um by a guy named mike carey who's a fairly well-known comic book writer who's right. also written this series of novels um about a they're kind of a noir supernatural story and they're about a guy who's an exorcist but he's very much in the mold of your sort of classic noir detective um and I think those the they're called the the Felix Caster series, and I I think those would make 
very interesting either sort of like a, I could picture them as like a BBC series type thing with, a, you know, six episodes per season or something like that. But it would be I would be really interested to see how they would adapt those. Um, I think I think the uh, sci-fi novels of Jack McDevitt um, are all sort of widescreen sci-fi, you know, big, big idea kind of uh, rollicking space adventures. And I, I, I'm surprised that one of those hasn't made it into a, a big budget sci-fi movie because they're kind of mystery action, you know, spaceships flying around kind of stuff. Um, uh, so I'm a little surprised. But I, I would also go with you, Dan. Um, I'd love to see Slam by Nick Hornby as a as a movie um while Tony Hawk can still be himself as the <laughs> as the appearance of the ghost or astral projection or something of Tony Hawk as uh, that, that living would make poster. a very good yeah that would make an excellent I don't know, movie series I don't know how you do it it's mini series no i think that would be a movie probably, i think you can make that as a movie that would, that could work as a movie i think the mini series is unfortunate the mini series gets a pretty bad rap in the us for the most part except for hbo kind of occasionally stuff, like yeah. hbo basically who's going to put the money into it but um but slam would work and and it is genre in the sense that there's like an alternate there's like an alter, it's a sliding doors kind of thing where there's like an alternate reality that he yep. visits or something and then he comes back to the one reality and tony hawk is his spirit guide and it's funny it's good as I, I mentioned, uh, when I, I get obsessed with particular authors. So as I was a kid, I was obsessed with uh, Isaac Asimov. And uh, I read the Foundation series, which probably is better in my, ma- my memory than actually in reality. But I, I would be interested to see you, uh, a mini How would you adapt that? I, I don't know. No it would be very Although, odd. I, I mean, we did for, nobody mentioned iRobot, which is a terrible that adaptation. Is awful. Yeah. Well, it's not even an adaptation, really. No. Um, Although, Although, has anybody Harlan read Ellison's, Ellison? Yeah, yes. Ellison's screenplay, which is very good. It's very, <laughs> very good. If you if you um, get a chance to read it, it's it was published as a book. Um, yeah. The Harlan Ellison's iRobot screenplay. Um, he did a great job at, at trying to bring all that together and, and it's a, you know, it's a sort of a shame that it never got made because it's way better like than the Will Smith movie. Oh, that was an awful I movie. really liked, um, I really liked his, uh, his mystery series, sci-fi mystery series, the Caves of Steel, the Asimov ones, but there's a trilogy, right. I think, or maybe four books, um, that, that tie in with Foundation later on. Right, um, but I really love, those are kind of fun sort of pop boilers. Right. What about, uh, Rendezvous with Rama, which apparently, uh, Will never actually be made into a movie, but they keep trying to make it into a movie. They keep trying now. Yeah. I, I think CGI, the advancements in special effects, has really made some of these unfilmable sci-fi movies filmable. Yeah, but it, and you know we saw it with Lord of the Rings, and and it goes from there. I, I'm skeptical. I mean, Rendezvous with Rama could be okay, but they'd probably you know make it as you know actiony as oh. possible. But really, it's like people in a big tube taking a scary elevator is sort of what that movie. They'll is. screw it up, but it's just fascinating because it's been in development hell for so long. That you're like yeah. now you're at the point where now it can't possibly be good, but you just want to see it get filmed. Just finally make it so we can all get mad at it. Move on. Yeah, I'm interested to see. Um, they are supposedly also making a movie of John Scalzi's uh, Old Man's the, War. Uh, the Old Man's War. Um, Wolfgang Peterson, I think, is making it, um, which is <laughs> an interesting. No, the the Scalzi thing. Uh, you know, those are good books. That that whole um, series mm-hmm. is is really good, and I can see how that could be a pretty cool. Um, pretty cool movie because again you've got action you've got the whole kind of war backdrop and you've got some interesting character stories about these old people who become young people um so that that really, could be it's great. like cocoon but with guns yeah with yeah and big blue super strong soldier people and aliens and guns yeah it's great oh, it's, it's, it's great it's that's a good series avatar good meets cocoon that's how you pitch it ah <laughs> that's why they're making it i think is because somebody said hey remember that uh Cocoon with Donna Michi. <laughs> Wilford Brimley. You could do that with guns. That's right. <laughs> yeah, actually, if you just given them all guns in that movie, <laughs> I might have watched that movie. <laughs> you know, the best speaking of movies made it or books made into movies, The Firm. I you know, I'm not gonna say anything positive about the movie or the book, other than to say that in the firm, Wilford Brimley is kicked to death by Tom Cruise. <laughs> kicked to death. It's the right thing to do. Oh, and man. a tasty you, way to do it. It's just <laughs> <laughs> and on that note thank you everybody for joining me on this uh on this exciting podcast about movies and books and how they hate each other and must fight to the death or something like that scott mcnulty thank you thank you i think the the book was better than this podcast all right john syracusa thank you thank you jason dan morin thank you for bringing your uh 
deep knowledge of uh, Hudson Hawk novelization. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for listening to The Incomparable. You, uh, are, you impressed us with your fortitude to stick through to the end. Until next time, good night. And on that note, on the kicking to death of Wilford Brimley in The Firm, based on the fine John Grisham novel I, of the same name. I read the novelization, not the actual novel. But the novelization. <laughs> you read the novelization. Excellent. Excellent. It was by Wilford it Brimley. Was. No. <laughs> no, no. Audiobook by Wilford Brimley. And in, in the novel, the Wilford Brimley character, <laughs> he, he kicks the Tom Cruise character <laughs> to death. It's very odd. Yeah, so there's a little, uh, they change it up like a continuity error. Strange. Very strange. Um, The novelization of the audiobook of the novelization of the movie of the novel, though, is excellent. I'm actually not planning on listening to this podcast. I'm just going (laughs) to read the novelization. Actually, that would be great. I'd love to see a novelization of this podcast. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, well, no, for this one, not last week's. There's no one. plot. <laughs> Don't worry. When, when... No, there's, an, there's a whole through line about about um, a Scott and the Scientologists. That's true. Um, and when, when Piers and Anthony it... writes it, it'll, it'll just leap <laughs> off the page. Like, he, he's actually going to novelize... more like the Da Vinci Code, Piers, though. Piers Anthony's going to novelize the entire series of podcast episodes we've done, and the first one will be really good, and then after that, it's just going to be the same one over and over again. Podcast. You should get the audiobook of the podcast. Uh, That's the best one. The audiobook of the po- <laughs> novelization of the podcast. Uh, dr- dramatic reading of the Incomparable Podcast. Who would be our reader? Stephen Fry. Morgan Freeman. Ooh, I like that. Nipsey Russell. <laughs> <laughs>